Welcome back to Open Swim. You're here with Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Jennifer Cho Salif, and Alex Knight. talking about the recent winter olympics and uh before we get going what were you guys into what were you liking what sports were getting you just really jazzed up curling just kidding and as of time of this recording they may get a gold the u.s oh unbelievable they've they've swept ahead (laughs) swept ahead (laughs) but how heavy is it we learned that in montreal yeah well it was actually really funny while the olympics were going on we were up in canada and obviously the canadians are highly competitive in these games and we found out that the curling stone is actually in the mid 30 to mid 40 pound range which is pretty heavy I don't know. I mean, that seems like a lot more difficult than I thought. And then the whole thing with the sweeping of the ice. I mean, it's very complex. But I thought it was funny because the hotel we were at, they actually used those curling stones as door stops. Door stops. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I don't know if they do that all the time, but they definitely were doing that during the Olympics. Yeah. So a little shout out to the Mount Stephen Hotel. I wonder if the cleaning staff gets stressed when they have to sweep around the curling stone. Like if they have to go real fast. <laughs> 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 totally. <laughs> I love it. So, Alex, what about you? What sports were you really enjoying in the Winter Olympics this year? I have to be honest with you, Hallie. I haven't watched that much of the Winter Olympics, but one sport that really catches my eye is skeleton. Amazing. And I don't know a ton about it, to be honest, but from videos I've seen, it's basically men and women individually going on a, on a board, running on ice, and just going down a slide, basically, at, I don't know how, how fast, probably 80 at least miles an hour. I have to say, I think that is the scariest sport in the Olympics. It's I just terrifying. Like, it's terrifying. What if you crash head first? Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing, we will, we will rock you. So I feel like every Olympic season, there are new trends that emerge. We talk about the athletes, we talk about the broadcast, but all of us were noticing some different things about these games and what the athletes were doing both on and off of the competition field, so to speak. So Alex, why don't you cue us up? What was catching your attention during these winter games? So one thing that really interests me was how these athletes survive each year without, you know, being distracted of, of the Olympics, preparing for that and putting all their blood, sweat and tears into that and having to balance that with paying rent, paying utilities, if they have a family, taking care of their family and doing all those basic things that we, we normal people do. And so obviously a big way that these people get support is through sponsorships. And the biggest sponsorships, as we all know, typically to go to the best of the best. So the Sean Whites, the world, the Lindsey Vaughns, the Michael Phelps, getting your face on a Wheaties box or getting Under Armour, those big sponsorships. One thing that I thought was interesting that I found in this article from CNBC is that this alpine skier named Stacy Cook has taken advantage of some local sponsorships. And so she has never medaled before in an Olympic Games, and she's competed in three of them. She's sponsored by Mammoth Mountain Ski Area, and this is her home resort. And she also hosts camps, fundraisers, and other events. So, so this is a big way that she earns income throughout the year. Another example is Keegan Randall, a five-time Olympic cross-country skier from Alaska, and her sponsorships include L.L. Bean and Cashy, 
but she also has Alaska seafood. And so something else that this article goes into is side hustles and crowdfunding, which is a big way that the less known athletes make money. And so a lot of the athletes will, you know, they work as nannies. Um, they clean houses, they bust tables. For crowdfunding, there are public campaigns for athletes on GoFundMe, and as well as a specific one for athletes called Rally Me. And I thought that was very interesting because they're Olympic athletes, they're, ma- they're amazing, they're 0.01% of the population, but they are struggling just to pay rent. And they have to go through this challenge just to survive every day to be able to compete, especially for the United States athletes, where the U.S. Olympic Committee rewards gold medalists $37,500, silver medalists $22,500, and bronze medalists $15,000, which really forces the athletes to look at other ways to support themselves each year. Everybody thinks that these medals are their payday, and it really is not the Olympics and where the finances lie. It's actually in the sponsorships and the marketing deals that these athletes become involved in. As you were saying earlier, Alex, you know, the coveted Wheaties box, the, you know, the the tennis shoe line or the, the uh, energy drink campaign, that's really where the payday and their, uh, their ability to have a living um, as a in their career as athletes exists. Also, the dedication and the commitment that their parents make throughout the years, that's the story you constantly are hearing is the sacrifices that are made um, when they, you know, they sense this talent in this, in these individuals and the sacrifices that a family takes on to foster the, the talent that gets them to the Olympics. And the, you know, you, you have all walks of life, literally, you know, so there could be somebody who, you know, they may be more affluent and, and it's not as much of a struggle, but you do hear the stories of families that move, you know, to a small apartment to, to release the chains of a mortgage, all in the effort to elevate their child to be able to train and perfect their, their gift and, and their position in this world stage that is the Olympics. It's amazing. Like even just uh, Red Gerard, he won slope style this year and his family like completely converted their property into a snowboard park Mm. so that his brother and him and other siblings could really enjoy and train. That's like Chloe Kim, the gold medalist snowboarder. Her dad gave up his engineering career when she was eight because he he realized she had Olympic potential. So he gave up his career so he could full time support her five hour drives, you know, from beachside Torrance, California, up to Mammoth. But which is a great question, though. He gave up his career, but then where is the funding coming from? It's a testament to the the strength of the Olympic brand. With so many things in this world that have changed over time, it seems that this brand remains strong. And you see that through, you know, how fanatical people become, you know, Mm -hmm. every four years about the Olympics. You know, you wouldn't know that that friend of yours had this ultimate passion for ice dancing and all of a sudden the Winter Olympics are here and they are just glued to their TV set. So I think that's also something that's really interesting to think about is like why has this brand persisted in the way that it has and remains such a point of pride for people, you know, all around the world. average cost of a commercial during the Olympics this year costs around $500,000. So if you had a few advertisers that were like, you know what, I'm just going to dedicate that to splitting those funds for all the athletes, 
their prize take home would be increased dramatically. So it's just really interesting to see how it's all weighted. And especially when you talk about the other side of a sponsorship, which I was fascinated by the idea of how sponsorships work. So as a young lad, I was big into snowboarding. And right around the time I got into it was when Sean White came about. And people may know that he was discovered at age seven by Tony Hawk. Imagine that. Same year, got a sponsorship with Burton Snowboards, who I just wanted to Burton Snowboard so bad. So just this young kid, and I remember watching all the competitions. He was out there in the half pipe competing with everyone, just doing incredible things. And just like we talked about earlier, it's really the support of his parent the support of his parents that made it possible they were with him the whole they were with him the whole way fast forward to today he had an accident earlier this year in one of the major snowboard competitions and had several stitches and everyone was concerned about how he was going to do in the olympics and he went down and did his first two runs he didn't do that great then one of the snowboarders from japan came ayumu hirano and he just killed it his air was insane like i was convinced this guy is getting gold so he was number one and I, I can't remember exactly who followed him, but Sean was coming pretty quickly thereafter. He dropped in, started his run with one of the biggest airs ever. So a lot of people, when they watched it on television, they all agreed that Ayumu was the winner because his air was so big right at the very beginning. But if you read about it, a lot of people were analyzing it. And from the perspective of the way the cameras were shot, it just looked like his air was that much bigger. But actually where the judges were sitting, they saw a better um, perspective. And he Ayumu's air was great, but Sean's 1440 was even bigger. So that's what really put him over the edge and got him the gold. And so it was really exciting for me to see him because he had that comeback and uh, really made it happen for the United States. But what I find really fascinating about Sean is this kid was seven years old, gets discovered by Tony Hawk, as I mentioned, and he just has built an empire. One, being this icon, Right. So he has a little bit of swagger, let's be honest. And then two, being an athlete. Right. And then lastly, an entrepreneur. So in the, in the area of entrepreneurship, what he's done is he has his own festival called Aaron Style that brings snowboarding, skateboarding and music together. So they do have contests and there's a competition that happens. But what's incredible is they get great bands like this year. They're having Phoenix, Cut Copy, Fanagram, Cloud Nothings. It's just a great lineup. You know, it's something that people want to go to. But the sponsors are insane. He has 25 different sponsors. He, he's getting money from Yahoo, Sports, Swatch, Walmart, JBL, Cliff, Subaru. It just goes on and on and on. Just incredible so sponsors. I have a question for you. You know, because Sean White, obviously, he's one of those athletes that ever since he came on the scene, he's just had an incredible amount of sponsors, you know, throw money behind him. But he's not necessarily like the most winningest. He's not necessarily like the most winning athlete even in our lives times. So why, what is it about him and his own personal brand that has made him so attractive to sponsors? Like LeBron, people watch LeBron grow into being a star. And I think there's that fascination with Sean White as well, that this, this young kid just continues to grow and push the sport. And that's really interesting. But is he it like the idea of like a phenom, like you're seeing them at a at a conformative stage in their lives and you I'd get to follow so, their yeah. journey, you think? And yeah. you're seeing this character arc too because, yeah, it was like we grow up with him. It's like watching a child star and then they, you know, go through their crazy shenanigans and then they kind of mature into an adult. And I think also it was a comeback story for Sean White because he's 31 and a lot of people considered him over the hill. And he wasn't he, favored to win because he did it medal in the last Olympics. Right, at all. he yeah. yeah, he got fourth place. He didn't even yeah. And to him, 
the Sean White mentality is even second places like failure to him. You know, for him, it's gold or nothing. And so I think Sochi was devastating for him to not even meddle. But yeah, just I think that character arc of watching him grow up and I mean, even him, just that crazy red hair and then yeah, him cutting it off, that in, in itself was a huge story. It was story. front page news. I was just right. going to comment on that. Yeah. And I, d- I do think that's where you realize he's crossed over from just being an athlete, but he is a, a part of popular culture. Absolutely. So, yeah, in addition to this Aaron style festival that he has, he also has White Space, which is a clothing line he has created with uh, Macy's. What's interesting about it is it's only available in the store, so you can't even buy it online. Hmm. So it's, it has very limited distribution, but I'm sure he's making a lot of money in that area. He's got clothes at Target, too, because he I've I've bought Sean White without realizing it was Sean White. Oh I've bought items for Caden. Mm. Like the other day, um, I noticed his sweatshirt. It's a Sean White sweatshirt, and it's, you know, it, and I definitely bought that at Target. Like, I didn't even realize I was buying something Sean White branded. But yeah, I, br- I thought he had his clothes at other places. Maybe it was his line before it was exclusive with Macy's. And then... The other thing that he's doing from an entrepreneurship perspective is he is a part owner in Mammoth Resort, which we've all talked about so far. Um, it's just it's kind of an iconic place in the world of skiing and snowboarding and, and snow sports in general. And he's a part owner. So you have one athlete that um, Alex mentioned earlier that's going there and doing ca- summer camps. And then you have someone like Sean White who has part ownership in the whole resort. So it's just very different perspectives there. Obviously, you could argue skills are different, and that's maybe why they got to those different places. But Sean was someone who was able to take his sport and just grow it into a career in these different areas. And you can only wish that every athlete would be able to do that because let's be honest, your body, you age, and you aren't able to do it like you were. And I know everyone around the table has great respect for dancers. It's the same thing. At some point, you have to stop dancing. And how do you support yourself after you get to a certain age not everyone can become a choreographer absolutely and you know you hear it about NFL athletes a lot you know they get out of the NFL and they just don't have the wherewithal to think about their finances following and so they end up in a bad financial situation it's a really tough thing for athletes and so I think what's what's impressive at least about the Olympic athletes is a lot of them are so focused and they know that you know there is a shelf life on what they're doing and most of them um, and Alex, I don't know if there were any stats to support this in the article you read, but a lot of them um, seem to think about, you know, what happens next. It's a short window in their life. Well, not only are they thinking about post-Olympic career, they're thinking about, like I mentioned earlier, how are they supporting themselves now when they are trying to train for their Olymp- for the Olympic Games? And so, for example, uh, Team USA loser Chris Master, he won a silver medal in the individual men's luge this year, um, and he thought about quitting because he was too worried about paying his rent. And so it's, it's, a, it's a real issue. These amazing athletes that, like I said earlier, the top 0.1%, they can't even pay rent. So, so if you're an advertiser out there and you'd like to put your dollar, dollars into a good spot, think about supporting your friendly local Olympian. Alex, you brought up Chris Madzer, and that is somebody that I was doing some research on based on the idea of what we were just talking about, the sponsorship and that use of the money that a Olympian or an athlete acquires from their sport, but also the use of their personality. And there are definitely 
athletes who use that quote-unquote cult of personality in different ways. But I was really impressed with Chris and what he decided to further develop with his uh, newfound fame, if you will, that he's acquired at the 2018 Winter Olympics. He is the first U.S. men's single luge medalist ever. And he was involved in a mentorship program that is called Classroom Champions. It was actually founded by the Bob Slutter Steve Messler. He won the gold in 2010. And the idea behind Classroom Champions is they pair athletes with schools in, in the sense of a mentorship. And Steve discovered this, and I should say he founded this uh, organization, Classroom Champions. He comes from a family of teachers. And after he had won the Olympic uh, gold medal in 2010, of course, he went on the you know, quote-unquote victory tour, and Olympians will visit schools and, and talk, go to different organizations. Um, but I, the fact that he had this background of, a, in particular, a sister and a mother that were teachers, he would find himself leaving these schools, you know, telling these stories of inspiration. You could do it. But then he was like, well, they're never going to hear from me again or even really remember who I am. So he didn't like that idea that there was this lack of meaningful relationships that he was making when he would have these, you know, you know maybe he was feeling like the sense of canned presentation. And he wanted to find a way to connect to kids in a more sustainable way rather than just you know, one and done, you know, visit and then leaving and walking away, you know, and uh, taking a few photos. And that was the end, the end of it. So that thought process uh, inspired that creation of Classroom Champions. And the idea behind it is they match Olympic athletes with underprivileged classrooms. And, um, you know, part of their mission, it says, to help ensure every child has an opportunity to reach their potential. They work in partnership with teachers and local education districts to connect It's both Olympians, Paralympians, hopefuls, college student-athletes, and pro football players with students um, grades K through 8. And the idea is to provide this mentorship that uh, provides students with a voice, so engaging them and inspiring them to develop these uh, social-emotional skills and research um, is, sorry, the idea is to inspire them to develop the social emotional skills that they need for both success in and out of the classroom. And so this was an organization that um, Chris, you know, he was trying to continue to cultivate, but they just didn't have the funding. And so he's actually donating 5,000 of his Olympic wow. earnings to, to seed this, uh, this organization that was originally founded by Steve Messler. And, um, Again, like some of the monthly topics that they're he's beginning to implement as they grow this organization are things such as perseverance, diversity, and and he's challenging other athletes to step up and also give, and other celebrities to step up and give to this. So the idea, it's just this idea of, like we were saying, looking beyond that initial Olympic fame and glory, and and planting seeds that create the sustainability and impacting people in a in a positive way beyond just that. You know, I'm gonna come give a speech, inspire everybody, and then have a good day. You know, it's it's a really nice. Um, it's real. It's real, and like what Steve had done, he would actually, um, in a sense, adopt a a classroom. And film his process and film him not only at the Olympics, but the idea of the training. And he, he, what he wanted to show with that was not just the end result of the success, but the process. And I think that's the seed that they're trying to plant in these students is, yes, you're just seeing the end story, but here's what it takes. You could easily say what it, what it takes, but he's showing what it takes and showing the ups and the downs. And so I just found that to be a really 
that to me is truly the spirit of the Olympics mm-hmm. is is not only the the glory but the grit that goes into the glory. I really like the idea too that he took these funds and gave them to an organization that already existed versus starting a new one because there's so many nonprofits out there and for him to understand that they have a great mission it needs to be supported and that's focus on that. Right. It's very much not a vanity project. Mm-hmm. It's not it wasn't something he founded, but it was something he believed in and and he's as I keep using the word, he's, you know, uh, using his funds to to further uh, gosh, these microphones, you just lose your sense of mind. Um he's use what he's doing is using his newfound popularity and those funds to cultivate the the organization that you know was already in existence you know it's it's kind of a unrelated but related but i remember a few years ago i had the honor of actually seeing oprah winfrey speak at the clinic and when they opened the floor up to questions so many people were like i'm starting my own nonprofit. i'm starting my own nonprofit." and her answer to them was you know more than likely in your community these organizations already exist and you need to take a look and ask yourself why are you trying to start your own when there's very much a probably the opportunity to join forces and and make a difference together together, exactly and I think this um, story about Chris and 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 Steve are the the perfect example of that of Eric again to what you said it's it's not a vanity project there's an authenticity behind the 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 action so in terms of sponsorships I know Chris won the silver medal but he seems like a gold mine for potential companies to sponsor him in this organization he is more than just the metal he has a brand he has character and he's passionate about something that these companies can really um the that these companies with the same type of um character and same type of passions and values can really gravitate to i love what you just said he's more than just the metal Mm -hmm. and i i do think there is such it is almost such a strange caste system that the Olympics do bring on. You know, there is all these ideals of sportsmanship and, and teamwork. But at the end of the day, you know, every, I mean, every time I would watch that broadcast, it's where is America falling in the most medals? You know, it does become this count, this count, this count, and who's getting the gold. And there was just this footage of the women's Canadian hockey team, and the one player took her silver medal off the minute they put it around her neck. And she's since had to issue an apology and saying it was in the moment of emotion. But that to me was, you know, the antithesis of the Olympic spirit is, you know, this isn't good enough. Um, Beyond all that hard work and then the incredible job that they did, I mean, you are in the Olympics and your team just got a silver medal. It's not, you know, nothing to, to look down on. To look down on. And I think that is a result of there is this kind of seedy, almost, uh, you know, underculture that develops with the Olympics, too, is it, you know, as much as the world comes together for these these games, it is also very divisive where it is. It does be kind of become this, uh, you know, playground, uh, you know, battle of who's better than who and who has more than who. And so it's it's a strange popularity contest. Absolutely. Well, and we were kind of sidebarring about the whole Tanya Harding uh, conversation because of the movie I, Tanya coming out. And I think that's a perfect example. Perfect story. Yeah, that was like the fairy tale. You know, there was the princess and then there was the, you know, quote unquote stepsister. And it, it began it became like whose team are you on and, and good versus evil. And, you know, 
um, you know, T Tanya coming from a, a background that was not perhaps as desirable as, as Nancy's was. But and what's interesting is Nancy actually came from a pretty blue collar background too, but the media painted her as, you know, the perfect princess and, uh, and Tanya again, being the, the kind of the, the spoiler, if you will. And, um, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction with that whole story, period. But yeah, there definitely are narratives that I think the media more than ever uh, create and uh, almost pit other athletes against each other, you know, in terms of uh, it almost becomes politics. Well, the Olympic athlete that has captured my imagination is Chloe Kim. Um, just on the topic of storytelling, there's so many wonderful stories around this just incredible athlete. And um, just on a personal note, I think she's captured my imagination. Um, the fact that she's Korean-American and she's from California. And I think this Olympics was super special because there was extra significance um, with the fact that the games were held in South Korea. So, you know, one thing that she said was it, it was doubly special representing America, but also going to her home country where she still has relatives. Her, you know, grandparents live there and she goes there once a year. Um, but the four kind of stories that, that are around Chloe Kim and um, that get told around, it's like Chloe Kim lore, you know, she's only 17, but... Um, she just has this incredible brand, I guess you could call it. She's First of all, she's young. She's only 17. She's adorable. Um, she's relatable. She's just a cute teenage girl with this fierce, competitive athletic spirit. I mean, she represents really the best of the Olympics um, and the best of the U.S. Um, and, uh, okay, so what are these four stories? So one of the one of the stories that's told around Chloe, and you see this um, like in her, you know, we're talking about sponsorships. She's sponsored by Nike and Samsung, um, the Korean beauty company Laneige, the snack worldwide snack company Mondelez, um, and Toyota. I mean, talk about crazy endorsements. But one of the the um, the stories told around her is this beautiful immigration and, and American dream story. And just a little background: her father. Uh, Jong Jin Kim, he immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea in 89. And there's this wonderful Samsung commercial, and he talks about, you know, that when he was young, he heard about this place called America, and it was this land of opportunity, and and that's why he wanted to come to America, and he it made him dream about a big future. And the beautiful, the beautiful perspective he has on the American dream is w when he realized that Chloe... Um, at age five was this snowboarding phenom and at age eight he realized she has potential to go to the Olympics and um, you know he quits his job as I mentioned before and what's interesting is he used his engineering background to help her train mm -hmm. and he would use um, his knowledge of aerodynamics and movement um, physics to help her with her tricks to yeah, and um, so that he used his engineering background to train her. But, I mean, he was all in, and he said something um, that was really beautiful. He said, Chloe is my American dream. 
And so the storytelling is not only around Chloe, but um, her father has really captured people's imagination. And he's as much a part of the story, this father-daughter story and it taking a village story that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. There are many, many interviews where she talks about, you know, I wouldn't be here without my parents. It's very much like a Sean White storyline, just without without the support of her parents, this village around her, there's no way she would have gotten as far as she did. Um, and then the other story that I love is the fact that she's this phenom, you know, started snowboarding at four. She qualified for the Olympics when she was 13, but she was too young to go to Sochi. And so um, she just kept training, training. And during the uh, qualifying events, she scored a perfect 100. And the only other snowboarder that has ever done that is Sean White. Um and then at age 17, you know, she wins the gold medal and she's the youngest uh, Olympic snowboarder to win half pipe. Talk about the grit behind um, training to be a professional athlete. You know, she never's been to a prom. She's never gone out. She doesn't go out with friends. I mean, she says her friends are wherever she's, you know, on the slopes or her yeah. coaches or. Yeah. So I think that's also it speaks to her just being really wise beyond her years because you see her in these interviews and you forget she's 17 mm-hmm. until she starts tweeting that she's hangry because she didn't have her breakfast sandwich, <laughs> right? And that's the other story that, that um, that's the other story around this Chloe lore is this crossover story. So she's become kind of this Twitter darling, you know, and um, so she has three runs, right, for the Olympics and the first one was just amazing. The second one, pretty much she clinched it. Like she didn't, have to I mean people knew she won the gold after the second run and um in between runs she's tweeting that yeah she didn't finish her breakfast sandwich so she's hangry she's tweet, you know <laughs> and I mean even that becomes kind of this news item just and again it speaks to just her being this cute relatable teenager she has definitely been successful in crossing over um because there's this there's this story also just of um excellence And like I was saying on this third run, she didn't have to put her all into it because she had already won the gold, but it was her best run. Like she just did these sick tricks and she, you know, and and they asked her, you didn't have to do that. Why did you do that? And she said, I just, you know, I couldn't live with myself knowing that I didn't do my best. And that I think really speaks to the Olympic spirit too. And just this competitive nature of an athlete. Who knows? She could be in the next two three Olympics if she wanted to and um you know she's won the gold she's 17 she's ready to go to college and so Korean (laughs) um her dad you know they asked her dad about just what she's going to do next and is I'll go Chloe's ready you know to go to college she's ready to go, go to college and of course she wants to go to Harvard and study business which will come in handy I think with all of the sponsorships because she's a millionaire at 17 you know a couple times over um so anyway, yeah, I think just she's the face of women's snowboarding and um, people were saying she's the future, but she's the now. I think she's the now. Well, she might not be just the future of female snowboarding. She could just be, the f- you know, the face yeah. of snowboarding for the next. Yeah. I mean, you said two or three Olympics, but she's 17. She could oh, stretch yeah. that into four Olympics, honestly. That's so true. Paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime. 
This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to Northeast Ohio's very own LeBron James. Last week, he and Kevin Durant uh, did this thing on un- Uninterrupted that's sponsored by Uber, and it's called Rolling with the Champions. And so him and Kevin Durant basically drove around in a, in a big black SUV around Akron with Carrie Champion, who works for ESPN. And they just did a very candid interview about, you know, basketball and their upbringing and, you know, what it's like to be in the NBA. And then the topic of politics comes up. And so I really wanted to commend um, LeBron James's response to um, Fox's Laura Ingram's attack on him after speaking his mind about politics and race and the current president of the United States. And basically, she reacted to his inter- to this interview and said that his comments were barely um, intelligible, ungrammatical, and ignorant, and basically told him to shut up and dribble. And he responded by saying that he's more than an athlete, and I think that he handled himself in a very professional manner, and in a manner that anyone else should have taken. There's being an athlete, there's being a professional athlete, and there's LeBron James, where you're held to even a higher standard. He is the epitome of integrity and character, and I think he exemplified this by the way in which he responded to Laura Ingram's comments. So shout out to LeBron James. So in this episode of Open Swim for My Bigger Boat, um, it's inspired by Chloe Kim and her dad, their relationship. So My Bigger Boat goes out to my dad because I'm so reminded... Because I'm so reminded... Like Chloe Kim's dad, my dad just sacrificed a lot um, for my my own um, because my dad sacrificed so much um, for my and my my brother's dreams. Um, even when we were little kids, um, my dad waking up at four thirty in the morning and getting me up at five and driving me to my swim practice every day when I was a kid. Um, and coming to every Taekwondo tournament and ironing my uniform and my belts and cheering us on. Yeah, so I I gave my bigger boat to my dad, and I'm just reminded and touched with how much my dad gave up his own time to help his kids not only have fun but to pursue their own athletic dreams as children. 
The Winter Olympics 2018 have wrapped, but I already saw on the news outlets this morning that Tokyo is in full promotion mode for the 2020 Summer Olympics, which makes me think even further ahead to the future of the 2028 Summer Olympics in LA. So today, my bigger boat is going to go out to the yet-to-be-named and determined mascots, because I think that's one of the funnest parts of the Olympics, is always these cool characters that they create. So I'm calling it right now. They don't yet have names, but my bigger boat goes out to the 2028 LA Summer Olympic mascots that are a shark and a minnow. My bigger boat this episode goes out to Snapchat. During the 2016 Rio Olympics, they had coverage on the app for the first time. But this year during the Olympics, the Winter Olympics that is, they had live streaming key moments, which was the first time they've ever done that directly from a televised event. And what's really exciting here is that they've actually worked with NBC to create a partnership where they have their own shows specific to the platform. One show is called Pipe Dreams and the other is called Chasing Gold. I'm intrigued by the ability for Snapchat to partner with a well-known broadcaster like NBC and still stay true to the platform and, and the experience that they provide for their users. My bigger boat goes to Leslie Jones, who seems to be having the time of her life at the Olympics, and a second sort of minor bigger boat, but no less important, goes to NBC for actually making her an official commentator. I think that that's a super interesting, um, really authentic way of using someone who's a um, a true super fan um, and giving them a way to be a part of the be a part of the primary conversation. So for anyone who isn't familiar with Leslie Jones's rise to fame, you know, as it comes to the Olympic world, she had actually just been, you know, really excited about, I think it was the, sum- the last summer games. And she was just tweeting about it and just going crazy over all the different competitions that she, or going crazy over all the different sporting events that she was watching and developed this huge following. And so halfway through the Olympics, NBC actually brought her on as an official commentator. And then this time around, she was with the games from the beginning. She was ramping up for it even before. I think actually most of the pre-Olympics coverage that I saw leading into the Olympics was coming off social media because of Leslie Jones. Um, So I think that it's a good way to um, not only leverage the excitement of somebody who really, really does love the games and give people who, um, you know, and also give people who may not be Olympic super fans an entry point, um, in, you know, because she just has a lot of fun with it. So Baker Boat, Leslie Jones, you're working it, girl. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at Special Olympics, an organization that transforms lives through the joy of sport every day, everywhere. Learn more at specialolympics.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Alicia Winfrey. 